Good morning. Thankful to be here this morning. Losing an hour. 22 degrees. But suffering has been appointed to us by the Lord. So we are here. No, God is gracious to us, and I'm thankful for this. We want to remind you that we have, I think, the number we got last got was 139 that are at our student ministry retreat this past weekend, or this weekend. They're on their way back today, I believe. Yeah, amen. Praise God for that, hoping that the Lord been praying all week for some time, really, that the Lord would do a mighty work in their lives. Such an important time for our students. So thankful for, for Josh Duncan and his team leading them and doing that. Also, I want to report that we have, up to this point, 67 signed up for our Serve the Scent in this summer. So that's praise, uh, praise as well. We thank God for that. Look, our goal is, some of y'all are happy about it, so our goal is uh, between 70 and 100. So we still have two days, March 15th. And so um, we would love for you to consider that. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Uh, to us here at the church, and we'd be happy to answer any of those, but we're looking for a few more. We'd really love to have about 20 to 30 more, to be honest, and that way it would give us plenty that we could go and have some rotations and other things. Great, great opportunity to go and serve our missionaries. Um, this morning, I ask you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. If you are a Christian, then you probably have been asked before to share your testimony at some point in time. Now, whether you call that your faith story, your conversion story, your life change story, we've referred to them in different ways. It's still the same. A testimony is how you became a Christian, how you became a follower of Christ and what he is doing in your life even now. And they're a great Many wonderful testimonies throughout church history. Some great conversion stories. I think of Augustine, a great thinker that changed so much in theology in the 4th and 5th century. Augustine was living an indulgent life. He was, he was drinking and having fun and just, just playing all the time with no real care in the world. And one day he heard some children in the yard next to him playing and he heard them say, take and read, tole lego, take and read, take and read. And he thought that was odd, but he happened to be in his home there and there was a, a, a Bible there before him and he picked it up thinking that was the Lord speaking to him. He picked it up, read Romans. And Romans 13 said, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, but trust the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. And in that moment, having heard the call to take and read, and he did, the Lord saved him and changed him. Other great stories throughout time. Billy Sunday, a famous baseball player in America who was playing and on his day off was walking around Chicago and heard a street preacher preaching the gospel and them singing hymns that he had only heard back when he, remember he heard back when he was a, a child going to church with his grandmother. And that day he gave his life to the Lord and decided it was time for him to stop playing baseball and become a preacher. And he began to preach and share the gospel from there. He's known of course, not only for his preaching and his sermons, but he's known for leading a man named Mordecai Ham to salvation who led Billy Graham to the Lord. Great story of giving it all up, fortune and fame to proclaim the gospel through the street preacher. 
I remember sitting in seminary one day and uh, you hear some great stories there as well. One man came in and gave his testimony of how he was uh, given a Bible and he realized at the time how nice the Bible paper, no ideas, how nice the Bible paper worked for rolling up marijuana cigarettes. And so he began to tear it out to roll up marijuana cigarettes only to tear out John chapter 3 and before he rolled it up he read it and he was converted at that very moment and gave his life to Christ. We love these stories. I love these stories of how God saves us even in our darkest and, and, and worst times. We love how these great testimonies come. But even in that, my story is simple. My story is the fact that I was born to a mother and a father who loved Jesus, a pastor. And from the birth until the very day that I can remember, even to this day, they loved and served the Lord. And they led me to Christ in 1982. They led me to Christ in 1982, hearing the gospel and believing. Allison led to Christ in nine years old at VBS. My point is, ultimately, everybody has a testimony, and they are all miraculous, and they're all glorious. Whether it's saving out of great darkness and, and great sin or just redeeming us by being born into a family that loves Jesus and loves the gospel and we believe. Whatever the situation is, if you're a child of God, then you have a testimony of how God has saved you. And every testimony is great and glorious to the good grace of our Savior. There's no conversion experience, however, as we look through and think about our own, think about those in church history there's no conversion experience more famous in church history than the Apostle Paul's. If you remember, we're introduced to Paul. His name was Saul in Acts chapter 7. And as those gathered around hearing Stephen proclaim the gospel, they began to stone him, to put him to death. And the scripture said they laid their coats at the feet of the apostle, or feet of Saul, not yet the Apostle Paul, laid their coats at the feet of Saul. It goes on to say that Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, committing them to prison. He hated Jesus. He hated believers. He hated them with everything he had, looking to snuff them out entirely. And we all know that he went to Damascus one day with arrest warrants in his hand, looking to take Christians from there and put them in prison and on that road to Damascus, a, a way that we still refer to some great experience, some great moment, life change. On the road to Damascus, he was confronted by Jesus himself. Why do you persecute me, Saul, Jesus said. There he was blinded and he was converted. The apostle Paul, who he would become, never got over that day. And really, as he's writing to the Philippians, in prison, chained to a guard, having given his life from that time until the very moment he writes this letter to serve the Lord Jesus, he still hadn't gotten over that day. He still hadn't gotten over how Jesus saved him when he was lost and undone, how Jesus came to him at that very moment when he needed him most. He was going to persecute Jesus and his church, but Jesus yet appeared to him and saved him, and he hadn't gotten over it. And the apostle Paul doesn't want the Philippians to get over their testimony either. He doesn't want them to get over the fact that Jesus came to them through the Apostle Paul and the missionaries that came. They, bring that, they brought that gospel message and they believe. And I believe this becomes the very point of Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Paul does not want the Philippians to get over their testimony of the salvation of Christ in their life. 
He wants them to guard against anything that would seek to destroy their testimony or take it away or steal it. And so he writes to them, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul's testimony. God, I thank you that you saved him even when he was persecuting you and looking to destroy your name. You came to him. And God, I thank you for every believer in this room because in some way our story, while it may be different than the Apostle Paul's, is the same. We are all lost in our sin, in utter darkness. We were all looking to, to live our lives for our own glory. But you came to us through the gospel, whether it was our grandmother, our mother, our father, our friend, whatever the case may be, you came to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ and you saved us from our sins. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to guard our testimonies for your glory, that we wouldn't let anyone take it or steal it or do whatever they may do to try to snuff out what we have in Christ Jesus. And God, if there's anyone here today that does not yet have a testimony, I pray that you would move and work in such a way so that they can see the glory of Christ this morning and recognize that all the things of this world added together are as rubbish compared to Christ. All of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul writes here in chapter 3, verse 1, finally, like any good preacher, he says finally. This, in fact, this testifies that the Apostle Paul was a great preacher. He says finally, he's got over half the book to go. Y'all see how that works? The Apostle Paul says finally here, but that's, his, his point is this, is not just finally he's trying to get to the end and he rambles on. He's saying this is what I'm getting to. This becomes my very point of this. He spent the first chapters letting them know he's okay. They had heard he was in prison. They had heard that Epaphroditus was sick and not doing well. They had heard all of these things. They had heard how people had been maligning Paul and, 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 and cursing him and putting him down even. They heard how they tried to destroy his testimony. They heard all of that. So Paul is writing them and he's trying to say to them, look, don't worry about those things. I'm not concerned about people that put me down. I'm not concerned about being in prison. I'm not concerned about any of those things. Epaphroditus is doing better. I'm going to send him back to you. I'm going to send Timothy as well. You need to know that I am okay because Christ Jesus has me. And everything's fine because of that. 
Don't worry about me and, and the looming death that may come by, by whatever uh, statement Caesar could make against me, whatever judgment he could bring. Don't worry about that. For me to live is Christ. Don't worry about any of these circumstances that I have. For Christ Jesus still is on the throne and the gospel's still going forward. And Paul is trying to encourage them by saying, it's okay. Everything's all right. Finally, he gets to this point. Rejoice in the Lord. This becomes the heart of the letter. It's why we think of the Philippian, uh, the letter to the Philippians as the book of joy. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. This is not the first time he's told them to have joy or rejoice. The idea of rejoice means to not only feel joy, but to show joy as well. Now, some have asked me, is there a difference between joy and happiness? And by all means, there is. Happiness is based upon circumstances. We can be happy, pull out of the, on the road in our vehicle and somebody cuts us off and our happiness is gone. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Or you can be happy as you can be, pull into the gas station, have to get gas. Our happiness is gone. It can be taken in a moment. It can be moved away from us, but our joy cannot be removed from us. Joy comes at a deeper level. It comes deep down knowing that no matter what circumstances we may be in, we have Christ and that is enough for us. We have joy. And now so deep down, whatever it may be, and here's the, the greatest place for joy to be seen is even in our sufferings. We not only feel it, but we show it. And so the apostle Paul is saying, rejoice. Feel that joy that you have because of Christ and now show that joy. He's asking them, be glad and rejoice with me. Back in verse 18 of chapter 2. Rejoice with me. Not only feel it, but show it. Let the world see it. Even when they persecute you, let them see that joy. Let it be evident in your life in spite of your circumstances, which is why this is the first time this phrase pops up here for Paul in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. He's not asking them to do anything that seems odd or strange. He's not telling them rejoice in being thrown in prison. Rejoice in suffering. He's not telling them those things per se. He's saying you rejoice in Jesus. Whatever else may be happening to you, that's fine. But Jesus has not left you. Jesus is enough for you. So you rejoice in him. Rejoice in the Lord. This becomes the very point of what the apostle Paul is saying. This is the motivation for Paul to the Philippians here, he wants them to rejoice, an invitation, inviting them to rejoice in the Lord. And that's why our testimony itself, if you're a child of God, we recognize our testimony is found in this. Our testimony is that we are in the Lord. So no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what things we possess, no matter what material possessions we may have, it's in the Lord that we find our testimony. It's in the Lord that we find our joy. It's in him. So this is where our testimony brings us joy, that we are resting and found in Christ, and we have him. No matter what is happening, joy. No matter what we own, joy. No matter what we have or don't have, joy. No matter what our situation is, joy. Because in every single one of those, we have Christ, Paul says. We have him. So don't lose that. Don't lose sight of the fact that you have Christ and he is enough. That becomes your very testimony. So he gives us basically three things here from the passage, of course. Guard your testimony then against those who look to destroy you. Guard your testimony against those who look to destroy you. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That's the sentence. 
And to write these same things to you, no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul, acting like a shepherd, a pastor to them. He may have written in another letter these things. He may have spoken to them about this when he was with them. Whatever the case may be, Paul says, it's good for you to keep hearing it. It's good for you to hear it over and over again. That you must look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul here, as a good shepherd, is warning the Philippians against those that would look to destroy them, destroy their testimony. And this is safe for them. Keep warning them. Paul had just told them uh, in the end of chapter 2 that they looked to good role models, right? He told them, look to Timothy, look to Epaphroditus. These are good role models. But he says, here come some who are looking to destroy you, and they may come in the guise of trying to help you. But in reality, they're dogs, they are evildoers, and they are mutilators. That's what he says. So look out for them. Here, just to kind of see how Paul gives this, and I don't do this often, but it may be helpful here. These three words in, in Greek, kunas, dogs, kakus, evildoers, kakatome, mutilators. Look out for the kunas, kakus, kakatome. He gives that, that alliteration to even bring force to it. Look out for them. What does he mean by dogs? Remember now, dogs in this day were not your labradoodles, okay? They were not your little pets that climbed up in your lap. Dogs at this day were much scavenging for scraps. If you've been to any third world countries, you may have seen these dogs. I used to joke in South Asia that there was only one dog in the whole country, but that one dog was in seven million places. Because they all look the same. And they're scavenging, they're looking for food, they're digging through garbage, they're just looking to survive. And, and Paul says, that's what these guys are doing. They may act like they're on a good diet, they may act like they're eating kosher, they may act like those things, but in reality, they're not seeking after the holy things. They're not seeking after what's true. In the New Testament, this term symbolizes those who are unworthy to receive what is holy and what is good. The believed in keeping that kosher diet, but in reality, they were eating pollution and garbage, Paul says. Look out for those dogs. Look out for those kakus, those evildoers. They claimed to be doing the law, but actually they were doing evil. They claimed to be following after the Lord, but actually they were following after them all, their own selves. They claimed to be doing what was right, but actually they were doing only what glorified them. Look out for those evildoers. Look out for those kakatome, those mutilators. We want to circumcise people believing that their hope is in that ritual. Paul had already dealt with this issue of circumcision. Now understand this. Circumcision in the Old Testament was the way in which God marked off his people. These are my people. But in the New Testament, what Christ has done through his cross and through his resurrection is now circumcision is not in physical ways at all. Circumcision is now circumcision of the heart. What marks us off as a child of God is that we have a new heart. We're a new creature. We're a new creation. God has saved us and redeemed us. That's what makes us his children. So Paul is saying, watch out for those who are looking to mutilate your flesh to try to get you to believe your salvation's found in that. It's not at all. It's found in a new heart and trusting in Christ. Look out for those kunos, kakus, kakatomi. Look out for anyone that makes practices or works or rituals or whatever they may be, whether religious or worldly, look out for them if they're trying to make those things the basis of your testimony. If they're trying to tell you that you're not saved unless you do this, this, and this, Paul says, look out for them. They're dangerous. They're dangerous. In fact, 
Paul says this is the height of what legalism is. Outward actions to give some sort of sense that you can receive salvation by what you do at all. Paul says we, in fact, in verse 3, we are the circumcision. Writing to a bunch of Gentiles, he says we actually are the circumcision. Why? Because we worship the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus. What makes us God's children is not any outward sign at all. It's the inward heart relationship that God has saved us and, and changed us and given us a new heart. We seek to live righteously, not but to be saved and not to find our salvation, but to demonstrate our salvation as we talked about before. If you look over in Galatians chapter 6, just, a, just one book over here, a great two verses. Paul summarizes it this way in verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. My boasting, Paul says, is not in anything that I have done. It's only in the cross, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, he says. What matters most about us is that our hearts have been changed. And there will be some that tell you you have to do something in order to prove that. Or you have to do something in order to do that. And Paul is saying, look out for them. They're trying to get you to trust in things of this world. And it cannot happen. It cannot happen. They want you to feel less than Christian, if you will. They want you to feel like if this hasn't happened to you, if you haven't done these things, then you aren't truly saved. And Paul says, that's crazy. Look out for them. They're looking to destroy. They're looking to destroy. In your testimony in life, you need to know that everybody who says the name of Jesus is not always preaching the truth. Anybody you look to that, that wants to use Jesus, even, even here in Philippians, Paul says there's some that's peddling and using his name for false reasons. And so what we must do as believers is be careful. We must be on the lookout to look to God's word and God's word only. And we judge everything according to God's word. And I say that with present company included. That whatever we say, whatever we offer up, whatever we give, it must not be contradictory to this. And God's word tells us that salvation comes to us by faith and trusting in Christ alone. Not in any work we have done or we continue to do. Not in any ritual we would pass on or continue to pass on. Not in any of those things. It's only in this. So look out for those who try to steal it from you by getting you to trust in things and actions and rituals. Don't do it. Don't do it. You know that it's just in that new heart that you have received. He also says, Guard your testimony against a misplaced confidence. As he tells them in verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. As soon as Paul does this, he goes to answer a question. Some may say, well, that's easy you know, for you to say because we have attained so much. We have received so many things. We have great merit in our own life. And look at all that we've done. Paul, you, you may not have anything, but, but we've gotten so much. So it's easy for you to say that. Well, Paul wants to share his testimony before he came to Christ. And he says, well, if that's what you think, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, I was circumcised right on time. My parents didn't miss the eighth day. They didn't wait to the ninth or tenth. They didn't have something come up and have to miss that time. They brought me to the temple, which was no easy thing. Eight days after I was born, they brought me to the temple, and there I was circumcised by the priest. Paul says, I have been doing this since birth. I've been doing this since birth. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin is one of the 12, and it's, it's really one of the two southern tribes that remain loyal and uh, longer than the 10 northern tribes. Judah and Benjamin were together, Benjamin being the youngest son of Jacob, the one that he loved most dearly, Benjamin being the smallest of tribes, and in many ways, it was the purest. So Paul is saying, I can count my lineage back as a Jew all the way. You keep going. Benjamin is the purest of pure, if you will. I have all of the credentials and the pedigree. I have all of the genealogy. Paul's name was Saul before. It was the first king of Israel, Saul, that came from the tribe of Benjamin. He was named after him. Look at our heritage, he's saying. I am of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In spite of the fact that Paul and his family lived in Tarsus, in spite of the fact he grew up there, his father and mother made sure that he learned the Hebrew language in a different culture. They made sure he learned the traditions. They made sure he was taught those things. Even though he was born outside of Jerusalem and Israel, they made sure he knew all of these things. Paul says, that's me. I was a Pharisee committed to the law, to learn it and to know it. In zeal, I persecuted the church. I wanted to snuff out anybody that said anything against Judaism, anything against what I thought was true. I was ready to kill them and persecute them. And I was consistent, blameless, as he says. Righteous under the law, blameless. Consistent and conscientiously making an effort every single day to keep the law. That's who I was. Paul had every reason to have confidence in what he had accomplished. But he says, everything that I had, all of those parts of my resume, if you will, all of those reasons that the world or even the Jews would think I would have reason to have confidence, all of those things are trash, rubbish. They're rubbish. Paul says, if you add them all up, they're nothing. They get me nothing. They're not helping me in anything. In fact, Paul maybe wrote that lyric that I quote all the time, were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be an offering far too small, right? If you add up everything in the world, if you add up all the things of this world, all of the privileges, all of the, all of the wealth, all of the responsibilities, all of the credentials, if you add them all together, they are small and far too small compared to Christ. Paul says these are rubbish, not because of what they are in this world, but because who they're compared to. Jesus is far greater, he's already told them. He's far more precious. He's the treasure we long for. He's what we're looking for. Jesus is far better than anything else. So I put no confidence in all of these things that I have, all of these parts of my resume. I put no confidence in these things. They're like rubbish to me, trash. I cannot offer them up in any way to bring any credibility to my name and to my life. It's only Christ. He says, my confidence is in Christ. So for us, we see that we must put no confidence in our family. I say all the time, I got a father and a grandfather who are pastors and loan the gospel forever, but I'm not getting in on their credentials. No way can I. I can't put any confidence in my education. Doesn't matter what I hang on my wall. Doesn't matter how many times I earn a degree. It doesn't matter where I even got that degree from. 
It doesn't matter to the Lord. My education brings me no credibility before him to forgive me of my sins. It doesn't matter what my professional achievement is. It doesn't matter how long I've been in the game and how many years that I have received credibility in my profession. It doesn't matter what I've accomplished or how big of an empire I've built or how hard I've worked at my job and put my hand to the grind every day. That doesn't matter. All of those things are good, but those things do not go on our resume to let us into the kingdom of heaven, Paul says. Let's go further. While many of these things are good, hear me when I say this. If you're trusting in your life group or Sunday school attendance to get you in, it's not enough. If you're trusting in the fact that you were baptized, even in these glorious waters here, cold or hot, it's not enough. If you think you're going to get into heaven because one day you walked an aisle, it's not enough. If you think you're going to get in because one day you repeated a prayer after somebody else, that's not enough. And while all of those things are good and they may be evidence that the Lord has worked in your life, if you're counting on those things, it's not enough. When you meet the Lord face to face and he says, why should I let you into my kingdom? Don't think you're going to list out your resume. Don't think you're going to offer up this, that, and the other. Don't think you're going to say, well, I was baptized when I was six. I went to Sunday school every time. I was a G-A-R-A sunbeam. All of those things y'all might not know, but I got it all on my resume. Don't think you'll offer up. In fact, the scriptures tell us that when the Lord asks us, why should I let you in my kingdom? You, you will be speechless. There's no reason. You think you can rehearse it? You think you can rehearse your speech and come up with some idea? When you meet the Lord face to face, you will recognize that there is nothing you can offer in and of your own merit, power, or strength to get into heaven. Nothing you can give. Your only hope at that time is that somebody else speaks up for you. It's only the perfect, righteous resume of Jesus Christ that can get you in. The only resume that matters is the one that Christ Jesus came to fulfill. The fact that he was the son of God and lived the perfect life, his passive obedience, his entire life never sinning against God, but yet his active obedience steps him up to the cross so that he will save us and redeem us. And he rose again and now he's seated at the right hand of the father. And when you get before God, you will not list out your resume. Your only hope is that Jesus speaks up on your behalf. This one is mine. Count him as a part of my life. That's it. Paul says, put no confidence in anything other than what can save you, Christ Jesus. All of those things are good. Pursue after them if you will. Go for them in your life. Get all you can get. But by all means, know that none of them can bring you eternal life. Paul says, it's only Christ that can do that. Don't put confidence in the flesh at all. It's only Christ that can save you. Trust nothing else. I love this part of it. Because as I was reading this this week, I can almost hear the Apostle Paul. He's got Timothy. He's got Epaphroditus sitting there. He's got a Roman soldier chained to him, right? And they're waiting on him to finish because they're going to deliver the letter. And they're like, hurry up. You just said finally. Y'all know what I'm talking about. But Paul loved to sing. He sang in prison in, in, in Philippi. By the way, just let me go ahead and tell you, if you don't like to sing, you might not like heaven. You better get to practicing. You know what I'm talking about? Paul knew that. Singing will be his employment forever, praising God, holy, holy, holy. And so Paul looks around and he probably says, let's sing together, guys. 
This old faithful hymn together, looking at Silas and Epaphroditus, thinking about how the Lord Jesus has come as their great treasure and everything they can long for and everything they need. Let's sing together. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. Yes, I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. Y'all know this song? Paul knew it. I'd rather have Jesus than worldly applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. And then he hits the course. Than to be the king of a vast domain and be held by sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Amen. Paul says, that's it. Don't put confidence in anything. Not silver and gold of this world. Not in accomplishments and positions. Not in anything this world can afford to give you. Don't put confidence in any of that. Put your confidence in the only place that your sins can be forgiven and life can be given to you. Christ Jesus. That's it. And everything else is like rubbish. May Christ become most precious to us in our testimony that everything else is rubbish. He's what we cherish. He's what we celebrate. He's the credential we always offer up to anybody and everybody that would listen. It's Christ. He must be. So finally, y'all will get that in a minute. Point three. Guard your testimony by resting confidently in Christ. Put no confidence in the flesh. Rest confidently in Christ. Paul says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul uses this language again of being found in Christ, resting in him. Jesus tells us to come to him and you will find rest. Paul says, that's me. I've come to him, so I am in in Christ Jesus. We are found in him. And so you're found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul here brings up a word. He doesn't mention this word, but we've talked about this word over the last couple of months. That word is justification. How are we made righteous before God? We are justified by faith, not by any work we have done, not by anything we continue to do, not by any goodness even in our own life. It's simply by trusting in faith in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. So he's, Paul says, I rest in Jesus because he has justified me before God in his righteousness. I trust in him in faith because he has justified me. But not only has he justified me, he has sanctified me as well. That's another word we learned even last week. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What that means for us is this. We live every single moment as if knowing Jesus is alive, right? In fact, we gathered here today. Easter's in a couple weeks, but we've gathered here today. Why? Because Jesus is alive. He is alive and well, and so we live every moment of our life knowing he's alive. So Paul says, I not only have been justified by the righteousness of Christ by faith, I live every day knowing he's alive and it's him that I please. And how do I do that? By being carved and made into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, we're justified by Jesus. We are sanctified by Jesus. And we will one day, here's another good one, be glorified by Christ Jesus. 
not only has he saved us and redeemed us and given us life and given us all that we long for and he's making us into the image of his son and shown us the power of his resurrection, one day he will bring us home to himself. Glorify us forever in his name so that we will be there and whatever pain we are suffering, whatever difficulty we have faced, whatever loss in this world we have dealt with, it will all be undone and we will meet him face to face. He'll wipe away those tears. And we'll all be together there again. And whatever circumstances this world has brought us will be nothing compared to the glory that awaits us, he says. In fact, as Paul tells the Corinthians, these trials in this life that we may be facing are slight and momentary compared to the glory that is coming for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, that's what I look for. Guard your testimony. Don't let anybody steal it by telling you to trust in any work you can possibly do. Just trust in the work that Christ has done for you. Guard your testimony. Don't let anybody take it by you putting confidence in what you have accomplished or what you have done, confidence in your flesh. Trust only in what Christ Jesus has done for you on your behalf. Guard your testimony by always resting in him for he has justified you, sanctified you, and he will glorify you. It's all what he has done. It's all what he has done. Paul told the Philippians at the beginning of this letter, I am sure of this. I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. It will be finished. So therefore we recognize a peace and understand something important about our testimony. It never begins with I or me. It begins with the Lord has saved me. The Lord saved me when I was six years old, trusting in Christ, believing in the gospel. The Lord saved you when you were lost and undone. Your story begins, every one of you, with a time and a place, right? With a person. The Lord saved you, Christian, by your grandmother sharing the gospel, your mother, your father, your friend inviting you to church. The Lord saved you when you were lost. The Lord saved you by bringing you to a person who could give you that goodness. Every single testimony in this room must begin with, the Lord saved me, saved me from my sins. Not with I, not with me, but the Lord has done it. Do you have that kind of testimony? If your testimony is, I did this and I did that, Paul says, you have lost it. Guard it, for the Lord has saved you. Guard it. Do you have this kind of testimony? If you're a child of God, thank, thank him for that. Thank him today that you can say, the Lord saved me when I was in my sin. The Lord saved me when I wasn't looking for him. The Lord saved me when I was dark and alone and I needed desperate for him. I needed him. He came. The Lord saved me at my weakest. Remember those testimonies. Thank God for what he's done in your life. Praise him for that and guard it. Don't lose it. Don't get over it. But today you may be here and you don't have a testimony. You don't have a testimony that begins with the Lord. You don't have one that ends with glory. But you can. Wouldn't it be great if your testimony today began with the Lord saved me when I was sitting at Taylor's first listening to this old dumpy preacher? Wouldn't it be great if you could say, the Lord said, I came to church because my friend asked me. 
I came to church because my parents asked me and I drug me up in here. I came to church because I was just looking for something to do and get somebody off my back. I don't even know why I'm here. Halfway through the sermon, I was scrolling on my phone, didn't even care. But the Lord, the Lord still came to me. The Lord still saved me. I heard the news that there's no confidence that you can put in anything, anywhere but him. And I remembered that day that I never trusted him. The Lord saved me that day. Maybe your testimony begins that way. Either way, don't leave here without one. Don't leave here without one. Because whether you know it or not, whatever confidence you have in yourself, your driving abilities, your heartbeat, your breath, whatever it may be, you are not promised tomorrow. Don't leave here without a testimony of how the Lord has saved you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your salvation that comes to us by faith. And God, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you, that does not have a testimony of Christ and what he has done, may today be the day that they can say, the Lord saved me. Father, I'm sure there's many who have believed in you and trusting in you, but they have not guarded their testimony. They've been pulled away by this and by that. But today is the day they come back and say, the Lord saved me and I'm not getting over it. God, work now in the hearts and lives of everyone in this room. May no one, Lord, may no one leave this place without a testimony of how you have saved them. You can accomplish this, Lord, through the power of your spirit and work. For us in Christ's name we pray. I'll be standing here to receive you. If the Lord saved you today, come forward. We'd love to talk to you. Join our church. Be a part of what the Lord is doing here. Come forward. We'd love to talk to you. Do you have a testimony? Know it. Know it today. Let's sing together. Stand up.